Have you ever imagined fashion being as diverse as human culture? Have you ever dreamed of a respectful, ethical, and socially just fashion industry? Have you ever envisioned sustainability being at the core of the entire fashion system? This is your host, Laura Beltran-Rubio. I'm a fashion curator, researcher, and educator. My mission is to translate scholarly insights into actionable strategies that we can all take to reshape how we create, wear, and think about fashion. So find a comfortable seat, brew some tea, and open your notebook as you join me in the quest for redressing fashion. Hello, hello, my dear fashion friends. Welcome to a new episode of Redressing Fashion. I know it's taken me a very long time to get here, to script a new episode, to find the time to actually record it and edit it and publish it and air it and everything. Um, It has also taken me a very long time to structure interviews for upcoming episodes, Um, but As you might know, if you follow me on social media, if you are subscribed to my newsletter, if you receive the Fashion Entries Databases newsletter to which I contribute a monthly sort of takeover, you might know that I have been a little bit busy trying to build a new life in a brand new country and with a brand new job. And all of that has really been, I guess, consuming most of my energy. But I, I am finally here. I finally made it. Finally recording a new episode. And this is a little experiment that I'm trying to do with no script, just an outline or a sort of order of the day with the ideas that I want to discuss. So you'll have to let me know how it goes. You'll have to let me know what you think about it on social media, on the podcast show reviews in whatever platform you're listening to it or through my website where I will be publishing a dedicated page to each podcast episode and all of those you'll be able to find in the show notes. So please, please let me know. This helps me understand what works, what doesn't, and it makes me try to bring more content that is relevant and fun and entertaining and hopefully educational too (laughs) for you. And before I start rambling on, and I really hope that I don't go into too many tangents, but I might. Again, this is not scripted. I want to just list a few things that I want to talk about and hopefully you'll be hooked. Hopefully you'll stay until the end. The first part is about my new life in London and not necessarily from a personal point of view, although I honestly believe that the personal can't be disentangled from the professional, but mostly in terms of my reflections of what it means to decenter, decolonize, and settle. I still don't know what's the word that I want to adhere to from one of the world's fashion capitals and from a very well-established, perhaps traditional academia or space in academia for fashion. So that's the first part. 
second part or second topic also related to London is about London Fashion Week and I really just want to share some of the things that I saw in London Fashion Week, some of the shows that I was invited to attend which were not your mainstream shows, the ones that everyone was necessarily talking about, but they were super illuminating for me, especially as I try to think what it means to create a more diverse, hopefully also ethical, sustainable, socially just fashion system, again, from within the center, from within the fashion capital that is London. Third, I'm going to talk about how I'm starting to plan my research, my teaching especially, because I'm back to teaching even after I swore a few months ago that I didn't want to go back to teaching. Um, here I am and I'm actually loving it, enjoying it very much, coming up with the new ideas and new plans, but then also trying to connect that with my more general, overarching, professional and personal mission of expanding the canon of fashion. And let's start with life in London, which has actually been fantastic. Again, if you follow me on social media, you've probably seen how much fun I've been having here, um, how much I've been loving even the simplest things like watching the sunrise from St. Pancras <laughs> train station or, you know, just like walking around in the rain um, because yes, it does rain a lot. It is raining right now. Um, but then also even just walking out to feel the sun just directly on my face whenever it comes out because it has also been quite sunny um, regardless of whatever myths tell you about British life and constant rain. Um, but beyond that and beyond those tiny little everyday life things, life here has been fantastic mostly because I don't think I've ever felt as surrounded and as supported as I feel right now from fellow fashion historians, especially fashion historians who specialize in the 18th century. Um, it has been lovely to become part of this group of people, to meet new people, um, and to, you know, just fall within a network of people who are interested in fashion history but who are open to expanding their minds about what fashion history is and should be, about the people and the experiences and the cultures and the places that we talk about when we talk about fashion in history and in the present, and who are just willing to, you know, answer my questions, exchange ideas, build new things, hopefully collaborate which again is something that I'm not sure I was necessarily used to in my previous lives, <laughs> in my previous academic settings. So this has been wonderful. But then also having the humility to know that there are many things that I still don't understand here, 
that I have huge gaps in my knowledge of British fashion and European fashion and even just like modern and contemporary fashion even in the Americas which is what I've spent most of my career thinking about that has been lovely too because it means that I now have to read more and learn more and do more research and in the process of trying to learn more I've also started to notice that even the attitudes are things that we should learn more from. And that brings me back to the previous episode where I discussed some initial, definitely very short ideas about the categorization of fashion, dress, costume, and related terms and how problematic I think I find this categorization, especially when it's thought of as one that is binary first, in which one thing, if it belongs to one category, cannot belong to another one, um, and as a sort of rigid categorization too, where the categories must Kind of remain the same according to this one dictionary definition that doesn't always apply especially as we are learning new things and trying to understand fashion and dress and related terms concepts practices in different contexts and actually Speaking of social media and speaking of that episode, I did manage to share a short video that I created um, f- based on that episode. It wasn't exactly like a, a snippet of the of the podcast or anything, but based on the episode, I kind of summarized some ideas, shared them on social media, and Beth and Bide commented that she also thought that maybe we should revisit these categories. And that's the thing. I don't think I'm arguing that we should just remove them, call everything fashion, call everything dress. I don't think that's necessarily the purpose or, or my end goal with this. I think my, my end goal is definitely just questioning them and reflecting about them, which I've learned from decolonial praxis that can be an end goal, like the process, the ideas that come out from the process can be the end goal. Um, but anyway, that's, that's a tangent. I'm not going in there right now. So the thing here, again, is questioning these ideas and Beth and Byte left this comment that she, I guess, agrees with me and mentioned a book edited by her with Liz Tregenza and Jade Halbert that just came out. I think this year, called Everyday Fashion Interpreting British Clothing Since 1600. And, you know, the title sounds very hegemonic in a way, because it is about British clothing. Um, Everyday fashion, though, I don't think is necessarily part of the fashion canon. And scholars have been going through a multiple years long process of trying to insert everyday fashion into narratives of fashion, into the fashion canon, trying to bring our attention to everyday fashion of something that's as worth of our attention 
and as worth of research or being researched and studied as much as the more spectacular and perhaps special <laughs> expressions of fashion. Um, and I actually had the pleasure and the honor of working with Hazel Clark and Cheryl Buckley in a book that they wrote precisely about everyday fashion in London and New York, mostly in the 20th century, a few years ago when I was just, just starting my career as a researcher. So the everyday is something that I've been, you know, thinking about for a very long time, even from within the centers of fashion in London and New York more specifically. So what Bethan said was that this book kind of adopts a very open definition of fashion or like open considerations of fashion precisely because it tries to include these everyday experiences and dress practices and even objects that aren't often featured in fashion histories and hegemonic narratives of fashion. They do have a whole section on fashion versus dress, um, which in the introduction is only a couple pages, but they are very densely packed <laughs> with ideas. Um, but I just wanted to share one quote that I have been thinking a lot about, and it's on page four if anyone has the book and wants to check it out. It reads, Examining how clothes are consumed, used, and produced every day collapses the distinctions between dress and fashion. While it is arguable that not all dress is fashion, there is much to learn from questioning where the line might be and how the distinction has been used to exclude certain people and places from fashion. Dress has typically been used as a less loaded term, but the exclusion of non-Western clothing from the fashion narrative is unquestionably deeply problematic. The more we interrogate the boundary between fashion and dress, the more apparent the importance of the storytelling process for the production of fashion becomes. The way we talk about what is and what is not fashion and where we look for those stories has a powerful gatekeeping function. But if fashion is indeed both a material and discursive reality, then we have the ability to rewrite those exclusionary stories. And to me, it's important to think about this quote, not only because it aligns with what I tried to do, which I already rambled a little bit about earlier um, in this episode, but also because they are doing that from the British perspective, from the center of fashion. And there are a lot of people who are doing that from the, so to speak, peripheries of fashion, and again, I think that differentiation between center and periphery could be, should be questioned. It should be destabilized, but you know, it's the result of colonial dynamics, so that one I think is a little bit more fixed, unfortunately, than the separation between dress and fashion. But the thing here is that we have a lot to learn, and in line with the many questions and ideas that I have talked about in previous episodes, in previous loose thoughts, that 
fashion studies, especially in Latin America, aren't necessarily always ready to embrace fashion studies, I think this becomes relevant because maybe it's not that people haven't embraced fashion studies in our context, because I think they have. It might be more that we are still maybe holding too hard onto these very traditional narratives, very traditional definitions, um, and if people in the center are starting to let them go, or at least question them, why aren't we doing that? And I say this because actually I, now I just remembered that I started reading a book in Spanish. It's like a general history of fashion intended for a, a very wide public audience. So it's a very friendly um, tone, um, kind of simple, but filled with very important ideas. Even those kinds of books, I think, still hold on to these dictionary definitions, to these differentiations, to this even idea. And this is written for a Spanish-speaking Latin American audience, to this idea that fashion is necessarily European in origin, that fashion in Latin America kind of becomes a secondary phenomenon, and that's what I find problematic. I hope that some of the ideas that I've shared until now have made <laughs> some sense. I don't know, maybe this is just me talking out loud about some of the random ideas that I've been having. But anyway, Everyday Fashion, super recommended. I'll be reading it and I will report back on what I think about the book when I actually, when I actually read it and I might even invite some of the authors from the book to come and reflect out loud with me here. It might be more fun for you listeners and for me too to bring other people into conversation, which is something that I've been promising from the outset and it's definitely something that I'll do very soon. Now on to the second part. Second topic. I know I'm jumping from one to the next. Um, I just don't want to ramble too much. So that's what I'm doing. London Fashion Week. Yes, there are some big important names that present in London Fashion Week. I'm not going to talk about them. Instead, I'm going to talk about specifically three runway shows that I attended that were super informative for me once more as I try to figure out how to offer more diverse perspectives of fashion from one of its global centers, which is London. The first one was my favorite collection, I think, that I saw in London Fashion Week. The brand is called Sunkun. I actually wrote about it in my monthly newsletter for the Fashion and Race database. And what I want to talk about is maybe a little bit of cultural identity, but then also the transformation or the interpretation of references from a particular cultural history in the creation of contemporary fashion, which is something that I admire very much, especially because I'm not a designer myself. So seeing people who can see sources of inspiration can actually digest them 
and you know reshape them to create something new rather than just like copying that i find absolutely brilliant and magical i just i don't know how they do it i couldn't do it <laughs> at least not when it comes to material products i guess we do that with our research in a different way you know with words um but not with tangible objects which is what i find most admirable and so what yan the designer behind sun kun does is take for example the chipao or chongsam that's this tunic uh, very traditional or it has become very traditional of chinese dress especially since i think the 1930s maybe a little earlier that's tubular in shape um, in a way it has a high neck usually slim sometimes short sometimes longer sleeves it tends to be relatively long it kind of hugs the body of the woman who wears it and it's you've seen it it's being featured very much on the cinema and it i think it's one of the garments that just speaks chinese fashion to many people around the world and for this collection yan uses the kind of straight tubular shape of the chipao for many of the garments but sometimes adds layers to it so there are a set of dresses that have these kind of petals that become flowers that in turn create a sort of a-shaped skirt which is not traditional of the chipao but you know it's a, a further development of the garment there are also a set of garments that look like duijin um, which are these jackets worn significantly with what some call a tang suit and again they were created with transparent materials kind of meshy embroidered um, some of them are in pink color with flowers some of them have these kind of metallic flowers embroidered on them but they are made with again a transparent fabric some of them look more like a suit jacket and so it's super interesting because i think it's reinterpreting some of these garments for a contemporary public and i think in many ways for a cosmopolitan consumer that might understand that certainly values chinese dress but that isn't necessarily interested in wearing the more traditional shapes then there was india day which i also attended it was a very long runway show it was a collective runway with something like 13 indian designers and that one was super interesting because well first of all it was in a church so <laughs> there were these stained glass windows in the background which i thought was just absolutely beautiful but then also it was india day so it was an interesting combination of cultures for the setting which 
fine. I, I honestly thought that the setting was just a beautiful space for any fashion show. And then the, the show started with some garments that I forgive my ignorance because Asian dress in general is definitely not my area of expertise, but I wouldn't classify any of the garments in the first collection as traditional Indian garments necessarily. They might have been informed by the more traditional forms or at least the traditional forms that we often see outside of the Indian subcontinent. But the embroideries, the textiles, maybe even the, the sounds because the clothes had these little bells attached to them that played their own music as the models walked down the runway in addition to the music that was already playing there. They certainly invoked many of the ideas or, or many of the most well-known aesthetic qualities that we have of Indian dress, again outside of Indian, again from a very ignorant perspective, if anything, which was beautiful. But then there were other designers who created more kind of western style suits and dresses. There was a jumpsuit, for example, that I loved because it had long piece of fabric to one side that was kind of wrapped around the model's arm, just like you would wear the excess of fabric that remains after wrapping a sari around the body. So even those kind of translations from the more traditional side of dress to, you know, a completely contemporary um, cosmopolitan garment. And I think that the thing here is not necessarily contemporary because tradition can be and is contemporary, but more of maybe as a Latin American woman, I will not wear a sari. I don't know if I should wear a sari, probably not, but I could wear that jumpsuit that has a sort of remnant of the sari and that I loved. And again, it's revisiting these silhouettes, but reshaping them and probably thinking about global publics. And finally, there was Jacibe Fernandez, Mexican designer. And I must say, I must confess that I had very mixed feelings with this collection when I saw it, because my first thought was that it kind of took the very stereotypical telenovela sort of villain, an elegant villain, but villain, and built an entire collection around it. I don't know where that idea came from, but I swear that's what I was thinking when I was seeing the runway show. I'm sorry, Hasibe. This is not this is not even a bad thing. Like I don't know it's a bad I I, I didn't mean it as a bad thing. But then when I came back home, looked at the videos that I had taken to share them on social media and even also saw some other posts from the collection on social media, saw the images, the press images that I was sent, the collection just grew on me. Again, being the villain of the telenovela is not necessarily bad. I think what I struggled with was with the stereotype of it, but the collection was actually kind of interesting 
in that it brought together these ruffled skirts, ruffled silhouettes with these blouses with flowers, especially the fabric flowers, I think were interesting, which to me recalled a little bit of the Spanish influence, which is inevitable. It might be a bit stereotypical and straightforward, but it's inevitable on Latin American fashion. But then again, I don't think that's what a lot of Latin American brands are necessarily using right now because it sells more to show these tropical birds and flowers and the colors. And Hasibe's collection was definitely a departure from that, which again, I don't think I appreciated as much when I was seeing the collection as I do now after having simmered on my thoughts. <laughs> on the collection for a while and the flowers especially were super interesting because they were huge and I think there has been a strong attraction for flowers especially for fabric flowers throughout Latin America for centuries that this collection might have been building on and that I don't think we have studied or tried to understand enough so there's a research idea for anyone who's looking for one um, if you want to research it I don't think I will but I'd love to exchange ideas offer my thoughts if they are useful to anyone um, or just see where whatever wherever this research ends up and this leads me Kind of accidentally, I wasn't planning this, I was actually just about to panic on how to move into the final topic before making this episode way too long, but this kind of naturally leads me into the final part, which is how I'm trying to plan my research and my teaching as I embark on this new chapter of my professional life as a fashion scholar. And I think one of the things that I'm definitely most interested in, and that's really why I ended up returning to academia, is working with designers, but especially maybe having an impact on design students, having an impact on how they create fashion so that first they don't steal, you know, they don't just copy ideas from other sources, but actually take the time to, as I say, digest them, process them, turn them into something new, which I think, again, is kind of what all three runway shows that I just mentioned did in very different ways, but they did, or the designers behind them did. Second, I really want to open students' eyes on what fashion is and could be and everything that falls within fashion, even if we are in the United Kingdom, even if we are close to one of the world's fashion capitals. I don't think that we can afford to continue thinking about fashion in this very limited, straightforward sense, not even in London or in the UK for that matter. So I want to find ways to open my students' eyes to those possibilities. I'm still trying to figure out how. And of course, to connect history with contemporary practice into the future, because I 
do think that that is the key to not only creating more interesting fashion, but most importantly, to reshape the fashion industry because we all know that the fashion industry needs to change so that it becomes more sustainable, more ethical, most importantly to me, more socially just so that the people who have been left out from it can actually participate. And that's actually another event from Fashion Week that I attended. There was a front row panel hosted by Models of Diversity and Unhidden, the brand, which delved into that. And the panel was very inspiring, too short. I felt that it remained a little superficial. And I don't know if being superficial is what we need right now. I think the fashion industry, and I was talking about this with a colleague the other day, I think the fashion industry has done a very good job at trying to remain at the surface of these topics because it keeps them from doing the very hard work that it will take to actually reshape it or I should say redress it, but we can't afford that, not anymore. We do need to find ways of cracking the surface, going beneath and actually getting the right people to do the right work. But that will be the subject of future episodes. And I have finally sent out some interview invites. I am sending full interview questions, everything. I hope to be meeting with some people I deeply admire very soon for future episodes. So please, please, please stay tuned and please let me know what you thought about my eternal rambles from today. Um, and one last thing before we end and it's my three little things. Even if this was a huge rumble, I do want to get back to the three little things that I want to be an essential part of this podcast. So based on all of the tangents that I went through today and all of the loose thoughts, I think this was the epitome of my loose thoughts this whole episode. Three little things that we can learn from today's loose thoughts that help us or might help us redress fashion. The first one is look into sources, ideas, conversations, discussions, writings that have been produced within the fashion center, like that everyday fashion book that I mentioned, because they might already contain thoughts and approaches and methodologies that can help us expand the narratives of fashion outside the center. So I guess to put it in a different way, don't discard books about European fashion or discussions about European fashion just because they are European. They can be useful in the pursuit to decolonize, decenter, redress fashion. Second, when it comes to Fashion Week, and we've spent a full month already thinking about these four major global fashion weeks in the four major fashion capitals, do look 
beyond those shows and names that we all know and that everyone's talking about to try to find what smaller designers and especially non-Western designers are doing and how they are participating in these spaces and how their participation in these spaces might help diversify the fashion industry. And third, think about how in the process of creating fashion, we can include history and theory to shape creations. And these creations can be a collection, garments, storytelling more generally, whatever you want. Again, I hope some of this at least made some sense. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know what you think. Leave me a comment, send me an email, message me on social media. We'll be back in two weeks with an interview, hopefully. Less rambles. <laughs> Thanks again for being here and see you soon. Thank you, thank you for tuning in. You know that I love a good conversation about fashion, so please don't hesitate to email me or message me on social media to continue discussing any of the ideas introduced in this episode. If you liked what you heard, please follow the podcast, leave a review, or share it with your favorite fashion friends. It does make a huge difference as we try collectively to build more spaces for thoughtful and nuanced conversations that can truly help us redress fashion.